Thank you, Terry. If you have your Bibles this morning, let's go back again to Proverbs chapter 12. And, uh, you know, Proverbs chapter 12 has been a, uh, for me, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, It's been one, a a really good practical chapter uh, for all of us. And uh, as I've said over and over as we come through this chapter, this ch- in this chapter, the Holy Spirit of God has really zeroed in on, on, uh, on the tongue, on the, the mouth, the lips, what we say. And we also know from this chapter that it all originates with what's in our heart and uh, our words. Last week, we saw words to proclaim the righteousness of God or words to be put forth like a piercing sword that was going to be a false witness about the things of God. And, uh, and today, we again will develop some great practical teachings for our, our walk with the Lord Jesus. You know, uh, I, I've told you this before, uh, down at the mission, when if you've ever been down at the mission, when you sing down there, they'll sing songs, you know, but when you sing one particular song it lights up the whole crowd and everybody sings. And the song that they love down there to sing more than anything else is the song Victory in Jesus. And uh, most people uh, don't understand why that is. And uh, it's simply because that in their lives that probably is the one thing that they want more than anything else and probably eludes them more than anything else. They're there in the state that they're in not because they've got the victory in Jesus, and they really, really want that. And it's an incredible thing to watch. But you know, the key to a victorious Christian life uh, will be a simple set of basics to follow. We tend with everything in the Bible and pretty much everything with God. We tend to overcomplicate things. I know that many churches that you go and and you hear a guy preach or he lays something out, His goal is to make it as complicated as he can. And many times uh, you take God's simple plan of salvation. Look what man has done with that. Makes it one of the most complicated, hard to grasp and understand concepts uh, anywhere. And yet it's so basic and so simple. Uh, The key to uh, Christianity and having a good relationship with the Lord is simply comes down to the fundamentals of Christianity. I had to started our fall single uh, group again this yesterday, and we were talking about some things there and going through discipleship and helping them get uh, be prepared to be disciplers. And I told them that, uh, that the fundamentals is, is, is true of everything in life. You see it all the way at the beginning. In Genesis, when God started it all, his plan was a garden. doesn't get any more simple or uncomplicated or down to the basics than a garden. But when the first murderer left, he started a city. And that city becomes all the complications that we have that we see today and all the things that go along with it. Last week, you all probably watched the Chiefs play the Broncos. And I know Woody's glad that the Broncos won, but uh, that's okay. Uh, We'll let him stay in church today. But but you know, the Chiefs lost that game uh, for three reasons. And, and, And please... Don't get your hopes up. I'm not turning into a football guy who knows everything about football. I know nothing about football. I know nothing about anything of professional sports. I really don't. Uh, I, I go to a ball game, and I've told you this before. I still wonder why all the empires at the Royals game have to be named Al. You know, I, I still, they got it on their hat, Al. Hey, I don't get that. I don't understand it. And it's a thing where, you know, I don't know anything about it. But I'm smart enough to know. 
how the Chiefs lost the game last week. A blind man could see it. It was three things that put them down and they never got back. One of them was too many penalties. The other one was too many turnovers. And the other one was too many interceptions. Now, all three of those areas, when you break them down, simply happen because of a breakdown in those guys executing the basic fundamentals of football. It wasn't that the, the passing game or the fumble of that. It wasn't because it, there was some major complex reason for it. It was simply that for a moment in time, the fundamentals broke down. And I don't care what it is in life that you do, that you're good at. Your success will come down to a perfect execution of, of, of the fundamentals. A golf. I hate golf. Golf is probably the most boring game on the planet. <laughs> It, it, it's got to be. I mean, I, you know, I, and I know no respect for you guys who love to play golf. You know what? I, I understand. It's, a, it, it's fine. There's no. I, I used to play it one time. I, I gave it up. I just, it, to me, it was just the most. No point to it. Uh, I'm. They talked about. I've never saw any of the birdies that they said were around. I never saw any of those. It's just weird. But you know as well as I do, the key to being a good golfer isn't how hard you hit the ball. I could hit that ball so hard. They, guys would tell me that I, I hit the ball harder and farther than anybody they ever saw. My problem was <laughs> it wouldn't go straight. I mean, I, the last time I played golf, I quit because I didn't want to go to prison for manslaughter. I'm teeing up, and I got this, and I love it now. Back when I played, they didn't have them, but I love those big clubs they got now. They look like something Fred Flintstone would use, you know. And, and, and I'll never forget, I, when I hit that thing, boy, and I mean, it come out of there at 800 feet per second. And, and, but it went this way. And coming down the green was three guys, four guys in a golf course. And that sucker went right for that golf course, went right in there and rattled around that cage in there. And I'm telling you what, I put them up and I said, you know what, I could do all of the power things. But I, I, I didn't have any control, and that was because you got to have your feet right, you got to keep your arms straight, you got to keep backswing, what all those words are, and you know what? Those are the fundamentals. When I played the trumpet, I never was a great trumpet player, because I, I, I never really took it serious. I, I got to tell you, the only thing I've ever really taken serious in my whole life has been the Bible. But everything else, I just kind of, well, I may have been good at it, but I was never great at it. And I was in high school, you know, I sat first chair all years, you know, uh, but it was only because there was nobody else in it. You know, it was a thing where I was not that good. But my band director, who was old school, he saw something in me that he wanted to develop. And he sent me to probably a guy who turned out some of the best trumpet players uh, in the country. And his name was Wayne Rigger, long dead now. And he had a studio that he took young guys and gals in that, that had potential. And he really, really turned out some incredible trumpet players. Now, when I went to meet him for the first time and we sat down, you know, and he wouldn't just take anybody. My band director, you know, recommended me and, and that was fine. It got me in. But when he started teaching me and laying it out, you know, he, he, he wrote a book. Now, here he is. I'm a senior in high school. He's probably in his 60s at this time. Very accomplished musician. 
And the book that he wrote on learning how to music is simply called The Talking Trumpet. It was a little book about with a stick man with a trumpet on his head for a hat. And Wayne Riggers was, was a diehard. He would say, if you can master the fundamentals of the music, you can play anything. And this book was nothing more than driving home in every key the fundamentals that are playing the trumpet. And if you mastered those fundamentals in his way of thinking, you could play anything. And boy, he never got off on, you know, the great things that you do over here or all this stuff. Or He just stayed with the bait. That was his goal, was the fundamentals. And I look back at that and I think to myself, you know, I don't know of the correlation in my mind, but maybe in a, in a subconscious way. When I wrote my book on how to study the Bible, it is akin to the talking trumpet. It's just about the Bible, the basics, the fundamentals. And uh, because it is the same way with the Bible. You know, the, the key to the Bible will be the fundamentals of the book. And last week, you know, we showed you that the fundamentals are simply the words of the Bible. Uh, we talked about, Joe asked a question in Thursday night Bible study about discipleship. And then we talked about discipleship yesterday in the singles ministry as I'm bringing them through the lesson, showing them how to teach them. And I told you last Thursday night that the key to discipleship is just four basics. Those four basic goals. You get those down, you'll be a great discipler. In marriage, everybody makes marriage such a complicated thing today. And marriage, it gets complicated because people never learn or don't ever understand the basics. Marriage is just seven fundamentals, basics to get down. When I do premarital counseling or I bring somebody through, I just teach them those seven fundamental, basic aspects of marriage. You get those seven fundamentals down, you're going to have a good marriage. Training up children. You can go out to every bookstore and buy every book on it, and there's a thousand books out there. You know what? There's five fundamentals about raising your children. You get those five down, you perfect those five in your children's life, you're good to go. You say, well, you know what? I already lost my kids. I already lost me. We weren't saved and didn't do what we should have done. And by the time we got saved, you know, our kids were gone. Okay, back to the fundamentals. There's five fundamental things you do to get your child back. It all comes down to the fundamentals. It's just simply as that. You know, every church in this city today, every church in this country today who has lost its way, who is an absolute mess when it comes to losing the perspective and the concept, they could get back to where they need to get back in just one Sunday if they just do one thing. I'm back to the basics. Get back to the fundamentals. You know, the Bible is based on 20 or 30 key uh, words. Uh, that, that, that really uh, define the Bible in a fundamental way. You learn those words, and I give them to you all the time, when every time we're in the Bible together, it unlocks the Bible. When I wrote my books back there, uh, my, the, the subheading were that, were the keys to the Bible series, because it's all about fundamentals, and those are the keys to the Bible. And now you know, the Christian life will be the exact same way. You get the fundamentals down, and you stay with them, and you'll be able to work through whatever you need to work through in time. It may take you a while. You know, you don't get into a mess and then just get out of it. I've told you many, many times, and this is a fundamental concept. 
It takes you longer to get out of something that you put in your life than it takes you to get into it. That's just the way it is. And if you haven't noticed yet, the book of Proverbs, the reason why it's simple, simple book. I mean, 99% of it is one-syllable words. Simple one-liners of absolutely profound but very practical truth. Because the book of Proverbs is a, it defines what the fundamentals are. The fundamentals for a walk and a relationship with Christ or the Christian life that we want to live today. It's as simple as, it's a simple format. And years ago, most of you are probably too young to remember this. Some of you older ones will. But years ago, Baptists, when the world was kind of, Christian world was kind of going the other way, uh, somebody came up with the idea uh, that Baptists were going to be now called fundamentalist. And they carted what they called the fundamentalist movement. And the fundamentalist movement, I remember back in the, oh, must have been the early 80s that they had a congressional, uh, everybody, all the Baptists went to Washington, D.C., and they had a, a, a conference on, uh, on the fundamentals of Christianity. And all preachers went every, from all across the country. They thought they were going to make some great statement by going to Washington. And they came, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pastors and people from churches had great preachers. And they preached on the fundamentals, why we need to stay with the fundamentals of the Bible. When you talk about a radical Muslim groups, who want to kill us, we talk about radical fundamentalists. You know, the Jews that you see over here in America are not really, really, really Jews. You know, Overton Park and some of the places over there in Kansas City, they have, and this is certainly not a uh, criticism, but there's all kinds of Jewish people all through that. But you know what? They're not really Jews. They're Americanized Jews. You want to find some real, real, real Jews? Go to New York. Go back to Jerusalem. There they still wear their hair the way they're supposed to in the Bible. And you know why they're that way? Because they're fundamental, fundamentalist Jews. They've stuck with the fundamentalists. The Jews in Overton Park or Kansas City are Americanized Jews. I'm not taking anything away from it. I'm just telling you the concept of, of being a fundamental and what it means. Why, even Pope Francis, I... <coughs> I, I kind of followed him wherever he went. And yesterday he was in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And he preached. And even he gets it. He stated, he says that every country, every nation will be only as strong as it rests on the fundamental principles that it was built on. Now, he said that. I had no idea that he had switched over and got connected to the King James Bible. <laughs> Must have been following my website. Churches today have come a long way, and in most cases, not churches are not very fundamental today. Fundamentalism is a joke today. Most fundamentalist mindsets, when it started good, it's like everything else, it falls apart because they lose their perspective. And where the fundamentalist at one time stood for the fundamentals of the Bible, the fundamentalists today, the name fundamentalist, have no fun, a lot of damn, and they're all mental. That's pretty much how it works. Fundamentalist. That's how it is. Now, the fundamentals of Proverbs, which become the fundamentals of our life, our Christian life, is just five fundamentals. And you see it coming all the way through the proverb. He tells you, number one, guard your heart. That's a fundamental. Number two, he says, guard your thoughts. 
That's a fundamental. Number three, he says, guard your mind. Number four, he says, guard your tongue. And number five, he says, guard the people you hang out with. Now, those five simple basics are all through the book of Proverbs. We have seen them over and over and over again in different fashion, different formats, but the same concept. Five simple, basic fundamentals that if you work and perfect them, you'll have that victory in Christ that we talk about. Most people who have issues, severe issues, or just general issues in their life, they'll always misdiagnose the problem. I watch it all the time. Much of my counseling and dealing with people is to redefine their problem for them because they come in thinking that this is my problem. And hence, they don't understand what the true problem is, so they never solve the problem. And they'll have some issue in their life. Maybe it's, like I said, maybe it's just a minor thing. Maybe it's a medium thing, or it can be a stronghold in their life that they think that this is the problem, this issue here, this stronghold. That's not your problem. The problem is you have failed in the fundamentals of the Christian life. And the stronghold that you think is the problem is nothing more than a result of that failure in the fundamentals. And that's why they'll never get the victory. Because they'll never see and understand that the answer to their problem is to focus and go back to the fundamentals. I don't remember who it was. Some of you sports guys would probably remember. Jim Proof probably would know who did this. Years ago, they asked a famous ball player, a coach, I think he was, if he could really define and he could really tell them the secret of his team winning so many games. I don't remember who it was. But he, on national TV, and he said, sure, I can. And he held up a baseball, and he said, gentlemen, this is a baseball. <laughs> and everybody laughed and thought that was funny. What he was saying, in essence, is, you want to know the secret of my team winning? The baseball. The fundamental baseball. And that's the key. It always will be. The fundamental structure for a New Testament Christian in its basic format is just simply three things in your life. The Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and the New Testament local church. Use them right, you'll fix anything. Use them wrong, you'll fix nothing. And these three form a basic fundamental structure in our lives from which we build then our relationship with Christ. So Proverbs is a great book on the fundamentals of the Christian life. And with that in mind, let's read our text today. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 12, verses 20, 21, and 22. Here's what it says. Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but to the counselors of peace is joy. There shall no evil happen to the just, but the wicked shall be filled with mischief. Lying lips are abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you today. And we thank you, Father, for the word of God that you've given us in its simplistic form and how true it is, Father, the basics. Lord, salvation is just the basics. Eternal security, just the basics. Everything in our relationship with you, you've made it so simple. Even the Bible, but it's man who takes it and complicates it. 
gets our focus off the simple things, and then we never figure out the complicated things. So help us today, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now look at verse 20 here. We'll start with verse 20 and work our way through. Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but that a counselors of peace is joy. Now, again, we see the source of all this will be man's heart. That's the number one fundamental aspect of our life, our heart attitude. We've talked it many, many times, attitude versus action. Now, the verse is a great one, and it's loaded with truth. It says, deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil. Now, that verse is a premeditated verse. Before every evil act that any man or any woman ever commits, there will be a process of thought about it, thinking about it long before you do it. In fact, the standard teaching is, if you think about something long enough, you'll you'll do it. And in Ezekiel chapter 8, Verses 1 through 18, you see a great example of this. Israel is in probably the darkest part of her history. She's in an absolute, total state of denial when it comes to God. She's allowed Baal worship to come in and all the wickedness that has come along with that. And Ezekiel is writing because of the fact that God has come down and judged the nation of Israel uh, for their wickedness. And when he writes, we see that in Ezekiel chapter 8, the terrible, wicked condition of Israel's state of mind. Uh, The sins of the nation, uh, deep, dark, and very wicked. And uh, we see that uh, the real issue here, uh, as you come down through it, he says in verse 7 that uh, Ezekiel says, you know what? He says, I saw a a hole in the wall. And he goes in that hole, and in verse 9 says, when I got inside, he says there was like a chamber. And he says there was wickedness and abominations. And all of the wicked things that Israel does. And he says in verse 10, and all of these wicked images of clean and unclean and all the filthy stuff that Israel's connected with were like images portrayed on a wall. And in verse 12, he brings it all into focus and tells us what he's talking about where he says, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark in the chambers of their imagery? He's looking at what's going on in Israel's mind. All the wicked things that Israel were doing started with a wicked thing that they allowed in their minds. Israel's wickedness starts with what they allow inside in their imagination, and now it has produced a nation, a lifestyle, a people that are totally without God and totally wicked. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, Paul talks about, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, see that thing? You can't fulfill your obedience to the Word of God without taking revenge on, your, dis- on your, your disobedience. Now, that's an incredible verse. 
Note that the pulling down of strongholds starts with verse 5, right where we're talking about. The casting down of imaginations, imagining evil. That's where sin starts. And after it starts, that's where it reigns. And when it begins to reign, that's when it becomes a stronghold. Deceitful in the heart of them that imagine evil. Now, there are people, and the more that you work with people, and the older you get, you'll see this. Probably most of you understand it pretty much now. There are people who all day long just think about doing evil. All they imagine in life is how they can take advantage of something, somebody, or get some leverage in something. They live off the people they use. In Christianity, I have what I call Christian con artists. Their whole life is a con job. Their whole life is a sham on everything they do that everybody, that they can do it to. I've seen pastors who were the biggest crooks in the world. And they go from one church to another. And of course, God is always leading them. It's always, this is of God. But they go one place, and they're dishonest with the people. They're dishonest in their dealings and everything they do. And it causes the ruckus, so they got to move to another place. And then it causes the problem there. And if you would back up and look at their life, it looks like a checker game. Uh, moving from position to position to position. And yet all at a time. It's always somebody else's problem. It's always the last church's fault. It's always this people's fault. It's always, well, this person. And all of their lives, they have, they have used the very things that God has given them. And it's one church after another, fleecing everybody they can. And when they get caught or because of problem, then God suddenly moves them someplace else. I knew a pastor one time, and he's still alive. I won't tell his name. It, it, it doesn't really matter. He was a missionary in America to the military guys. And his concept was incredible. But he was a crook. Great preacher. But every sermon he ever preached, he wound up crying in. Now, I'm not saying there aren't times that you get emotionally moved when you preach and you, God touches your heart. But not every time you get in the pulpit. We all laughingly behind his back, lovingly but laughingly, we called him the weeping prophet. <laughs> I don't care where he was, what he would do, what he would preach on. When he, somewhere in the sermon, he would stop and just blubber for about 10 minutes, and everybody would feel sympathetic toward him. And he would come into a pastor's church, and I know this to be true. I'm not making this up. This is an absolute true statement. He went to a guy's church out in Montana one time, and uh, he preached out there. And the pastor and him made a little deal. He's always going around preaching because... He wants to raise money for his programs. So, where he would find pastors who was crooked as he would, he would make a little deal with them. And this is exactly what happened out in Montana. He went into that church, and, and these were good people in this church. I preached in this church. They were good 
people who loved the Lord. The problem was they had a crook for a shepherd who fleeced them and used them. And he brought in this other crook who got up there in the pulpit and took the verse that says that a, uh, a pastor is worth double honor. He said that verse says a pastor is due double honor. And he berated the people in that church and he caught, says, you know what? If we believe the Bible, if we do what's right, you all believe that? Well, everybody believed the Bible. They say amen. Then he says, and I call for the church right now, whatever you're paying your pastor, to double his salary because the Bible says that he's worth a double honor. And they good, godly people who love the Lord were stupid enough to do it. Now, one person stood up and said, what is wrong with you? And what happened was, he got the preacher a double salary. He got a $10,000 love offering. That's how it works. That's how it works. You find Christians who use the church. Pastors who use their people. People who use the pastor. People who use situations. Never one time do they ever really want to do anything but take advantage for their own gain because they're deceitful in their heart. In the heart of many people today, they, they know, all they know is a heart to do and imagine evil. And, and then you have some of God's people, bless their hearts, who desperately want to break out and can't. They struggle. They have issues in their life. And, you know, and I've actually... I've actually dealt with people who actually, when I laid out going back to the fundamentals, they simply looked at me and said, you know what? In their mind, they're, they're thinking, it can't just be that simple. Because their problem was so complex. Their problem was so graphic. Their problem was so ingrained that they, they, were, like, they were like Nahum, the army captain. They had thought that some great... Spiritual experience had to happen. The, the heavens had to crack open. Lightning had to come down and strike that person and take it away from them. No, no, no. You know what? I don't care how complicated it is. I don't care how bad you think it is. That is not your problem. Your problem is you have gotten away and forgotten to perfectly execute the fundamentals of the Christian life in your life. And whatever you're going through right now is nothing more than the result of what you're not doing over here. It's just that simple. Now, there's a key word in verse 20, and it's the word deceit. Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil. They're deceitful. And they're deceitful will always put up a deception to fool you. Now, this is something that you want to really listen to because there's going to be people out there in your Christian life who are going to try to deceive you. And they do that to fool you. And when a person has a deception in their life toward you, it's because they want to disarm you. They want to make you feel at ease about them so they're not suspect in anything. They'll always tell you what they think you want to hear to try to gain your confidence. They, make, they, they want to try to make you think that they love you and appreciate you and then all the time is just part of a deception. And many people in that get deceived. 
But if you know the book of Proverbs or you know the Bible, you know the end result of deception is the fact that the deceiver is always going to get caught in his own deception. Sometime go through Psalms 9.15, Psalm 31.4, Psalm 35.7, Psalms 57.6, Psalms 145, Proverbs 117, Habakkuk 115, 16 and 17, Psalms 65, 119.10, 145.00, and you'll find the word net and you'll find the word snare. And doctrinally, it's dealing with the Antichrist setting a snare for the nation of Israel, setting a trap for them setting out a net that they would get caught in because he wants to destroy them. And he's deceitful in his heart. Bible says when the first three and a half years he shows up, he brings in peace and safety. He claims to be the Messiah. He does everything that he's supposed to do, but in his heart there's deception and wickedness. And he does it because he's got a personal agenda. He wants to destroy the people of God. And you know as well as I do that those verses, if you continue on with them and get a concordance sometime and just take the word snare and take the word net and just run it through the Bible, you will find that when the devil sets down the net and snare for the nation of Israel, God takes that snare and that net that he sets for them and he catches him in his own snare and his own trap and his own net. You'll find it in Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 21 to 23. Everybody likes the book of Revelation because it talks about the Antichrist and the battle of Armageddon and all that stuff. All that stuff is just the surface stuff. You want to really find out what's going on in all those things, you got to get back in the Old Testament. you got to find out where the Antichrist gets trapped. you got to go back to Ezekiel 21. Ezekiel chapter 21, it tells the story that the, the, the Antichrist is coming down in the final phase to destroy Jerusalem. This will be the battle of Armageddon. And he comes to a point, and he stops, and he says, okay, which way do I want to attack them? I got them in a trap. What is the best way to wipe them out? The Bible says he goes to a, a diviner, like he did at the Witch of Endor. And he, he inquires of them, what is the best way to destroy the nation of Israel? You think he would have learned a lesson. Just as God intervened back there at the witch at Endor and sent Samuel to him, God intervenes again and sends him down the wrong way, and God takes him in his own trap. That's the end of all deception. The man who imagines to do evil is kidding himself. I mean, he's deceiving himself because... All evil imagination will always be the element of some kind of fantasy in your mind, some make-believe, a pretense, a non-reality of self-denial. And in time, it will destroy you. And all this, not only does the man practice deceit to those around him, but he deceives himself in thinking that he can get away with it before the Lord and God ain't ever going to catch up to him. Sometimes the deception is simple. And easy to spot. Other times it's layered and cloaked very well, and it's hard to spot. When we came through people ministry here, a couple, I don't know when it was, had to be early on because this was in Genesis. I showed you that the greatest place in the Bible that lays out uh, in the definitive chapter on understanding and unmasking a deception is Genesis chapter 27. 
It's Jacob. When he's scheming to get the birthright and the blessing from Esau. And you know the story. The birthright and the blessing, even though they're separate, they're connected. And their father, Isaac, is the only one who can give it. And by right, Esau, who's the elder, should get it. So Jacob, a picture of a Christian who schemes every aspect of his life to get what he thinks he wants, and he's always giving God the credit for it. So he gets a goat skin because Esau's a hairy man. He puts it on. Isaac is almost blind. Isaac loves the venison from the, from the, from the deer that Esau, the great hunter, would bring in. So he makes some little stew. And Jacob puts on the goat skin and brings it in to his father, puts it down there, and his father says, Who are you? And he says, I'm Esau. And he says, Daddy, he says, Feel my hairy arm. And he feels the goat skin. It's a deception. He says, oh, and I know how you love venison stew. And I made some for you, Daddy. And he says, son, you just went out hunting about 40 minutes ago. How did you get that deer so fast? Oh, the Lord brought it right to me. Always bring God into deception, don't they? Now, Daddy's not too sure. He's blind. He's a picture of a young Christian or any Christian who's spiritually blind. But he has the basic fundamental keys to sniff out the deception. For he says, you know, something in right here. Because You smell and you feel like Esau. But you know what? You just sound like Jacob. And there's your key. Always watch what they do and what they say. The old sense, the old acumen is something rotten in Denmark. And I I love it because Jacob schemes in everything in his life. And when he brings that pottage and that great deception over to his, his daddy, his daddy says, what's your name? And he lies and he says, well, it's Esau, daddy. And all of his life, all of his life, he schemed to get everything he wanted. He schemed to get the blessing. He schemed to get the birthright. A little bit later on when he wants a wife, he schemed to get her. When his daddy says you can have all of the 
cattle that come out with certain markings on them. He'd read in National Scientific Review that if you feed cattle certain things, that they will come out with those certain markings. So he schemes to feed the cattle that gets the best cattle. He's a picture of child of God who schemes all of his life to get what he wants. But there comes a day, 20 years later, what are you all looking so serious for? Lighten up. This is just a nice little sermon. Isn't true? Don't you wish you just had a 20-minute sermonette this morning you could go home with? I'm sitting up here, man, and I'm having fun preaching this. You all look like you're at a funeral. All right. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Right now, every head bowed, every eye closed. Get right with God, and then we can have some fun with it. 20 years later, 20 years later, Genesis chapter 32, verse 23, he finally comes to the end of his deception when he meets God face to face. And from this point on, his deception is done. But boy, he wrestles with the Lord and walks away with a limp. But I always found it interesting. Jacob lived in Danah. You know the word Jake, name Jacob means supplanter. It means schemer. Jacob was always in denial of his scheming. And when he came to his daddy and his daddy says, what's your name? And he lied and got the birthright and the blessing. 20 years later, when he comes face to face with God, the first question God asked him is the same question his daddy asked him 20 years ago. What's your name? And this time, he says, it's Jacob. The schemer. The supplanter. And you know, he didn't have to do any of that. Genesis chapter 25, verse 23 says that, that God already told them when they were born that the younger was going, the elder was going to serve the younger. He already made the prophecy that Jacob was going to get not only the birthright, but he was going to get the blessing because of Esau's sin. He is like so many of God's people. He's saved. He's on his way to heaven, but he's a schemer. And you know what? He just can't believe what God told him. And so he makes it happen himself. Now look at the last part of verse 20. So if you want to unmask a scheme, just ask the person, are you smelling what you're selling? Now, the last part of verse 20 says, but to the counselor of peace is joy. Now, in dealing with people, you become a counselor. And your structure for being a biblical counselor will be the local New Testament church and the Bible that you use. And I've explained this to you many, many times. We talked about it in the first week 
of dealing with people in the people ministry, and we've talked about it in the church many, many times. People have problems for two reasons, fundamentally. They're either lost and they have no joy. They're lost because they have no God, and they have filled their life with everything trying to fill that void, and it all leads to a disaster and problems because there is no fulfillment outside of God and His love for you. Or you're a saved person, and God is living inside you, but you're far away from where God's at and where you are grieving Him in the Holy Spirit of God, and you are grieving Him in everything that you do because that's not what He saved you for. And you take the Holy Spirit of God into that little hole, in the little wall, and you allow Him to see all the things portrayed on the wall. Now, my counsel to an unsaved man is simple. Get saved! It'll solve every problem you got. My counsel to a saved man is get right with God. It'll solve every problem you got. Now see how simple that is? No psychiatry. No therapist. No Prozac. No pills. No what's your favorite color. No childhood experiences. Deep down inside you we got to unearth. Not the fact that when you grew up, your mom and dad were so poor that you never had cereal, and now you grew up to be a cereal killer. None of that. None of that. You have issues in your life this morning for one or two reasons. You're either lost and your life is unfulfilled and will never be fulfilled, or you're saved and you're out of fellowship with God and your life still will never be fulfilled. Now that's the fundamentals. Verse 21. There shall no evil happen to the just. But to the wicked shall be filled, but the wicked shall be filled with mischief. Now that verse of face value, I, I can see where some people would have a tough time with that uh, as it stands, because in life it appears that evil will happen to the just all the time. Why Paul himself said that all uh, that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, second Timothy three twelve. And hey, he goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 33, and he talks about the tremendous things that he suffered. He says, 40 stripes save one. Five times he was beaten in the back. Three times he says, I was beaten with rods. He was stoned, not the smoking kind. Three shipwrecks in the deep, cast adrift for a whole day. He says, you want to talk about perils? How about perils of water, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils with false brethren, hunger, thirsty, naked and cold. But you see, the difference is, as always, seeing it from a human perspective and seeing it from God's perspective. Romans 8.28 says that we know that all things work together for good to them that are love God or called according to his purpose. A while back, a book came out that was titled, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. It's a typical non-biblical Christian fiction book. Because in God's mind, nothing ever happens bad to his people. Even when God comes down and chastises you and me when we're out of fellowship with God, the Bible says that afterward it yields peaceable fruit unto God. It all has a purpose. 
The guy who wrote that book based it on the book of Job. Job was a good man and Job was a righteous man. And why does good, bad things happen to good people? The guy was so inept with the Bible. He was so short when it came to reading English language. He never saw the fact that in the story of Job and God and the devil, when there was a day when the sons of God came before the Lord and Satan came in, that when they got Job's name up, it wasn't the devil that brought Job's name up. It was God. God that brought Job's name up. God had a message for Job. The devil was just a delivery boy in the message. And sometimes God will have a message for you and for me. And sometimes, yes, he will use the devil as a delivery boy. What do we do? We get so focused on the delivery boy, we never receive the message. Things in life we deem negative and bad are the very things God uses to strengthen us, to perfect us, to make us better. It's all things, all things working together, not just the good things. But people don't want that today. We want a convenient Christianity. We don't want that sacrificial Christianity. Look at the last part of verse 21. But the wicked shall be filled with mischief. Now here's another key word, and it's the word filled. Simple little word. What's inside you? That'll be your substance. That'll be your character, or your lack of it. That'll be, in the vernacular, guts. Intestinal fortitude in the classical. Guts in the koine. That'll be your inner strength, your stamina. Inside, you're either filled with truth and honesty or inside, you're filled with falsehood and deceit. And you're deceiving yourself as to try to deceive others will keep you filled with trouble all of your life. I go back to Jacob when he schemed with Esau, got the birthright, got the blessing. When you study the rest of those two boys' life, you know what? Their life is filled with turmoil. Esau hates Jacob for the rest of his life, and there ain't a thing Jacob can do to get it back. You know why? Because of that verse right there, brother, but the wicked shall be filled with mischief. It never ended in his life. The importance of keeping your spiritual gas tank filled up Topped off. This is the reason why churches hold meetings throughout the week other than just Sunday. Now, I understand some of them overdo it. Some of them have it every night. That's stupid. But there has to be a balance. We have Sunday morning, Thursday night, if you're involved in ministry, and you have your own personal time and all the other fun things we do, make for a good balance. But you know it's true in life. You cannot keep running your car forever on 20-gallon tank. You just can't. At some point, you're going to hit empty, and you're going to sit by the road, and you're going to be out of gas. And spiritually speaking, you're going to run out of gas if you don't get your spiritual tank filled up on a regular basis. This is why so many of God's people who once were on fire for the Lord came to church doing everything for God, 
doing a good work for God. They're sitting along the road of life now, watching everything in Christianity pass them by because they're out of gas. They've hit empty. It's just that simple. It's just that fundamental. Now, let me say this. In a literal sense, in your car, probably everybody here has run out of gas at some point or other. You know there's two reasons why you run out of gas? Only two. The first reason is you run out of gas is because you see it's on empty, but you only got about 20 miles to get home. And you think you can make it. Yeah. I mean, the light is flashing. You're on E. And you're sitting there thinking, I can make it. I can make it. I can make it. To me, you got to get gas at some point. And so you make it home, congratulations. And then you run out of gas, go into the gas station. And I've seen them pass four or five gas stations that had gas. And all they had to do was pull in, fill her up. But no, 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 no. We think that we can make it without filling it up. The second reason, you just ain't paying attention. Oh, I see him. I see him driving down the freeway. My wife gets upset with me, doesn't want me to drive her new car because of the fact that, you know, I, I drive like a madman. She says, you drive, drive angry. <laughs> well, absolutely. There's a lot of people out there that make me angry. I'm an angry man. Bible says, have no fellowship with an angry man. Don't fellowship with me. I'm angry. Just ask her. I watch them drive down the street. I see some of these ones over there, man, that they're, that they're, they're at a rock concert. I mean, they're driving by and my windows are going, woomba, woomba, woomba. I mean, they got, got those big Bose speakers around the back. He's laying back there with a whatever out of his mouth, you know, dark sunglasses on, and he's going to and down the road, man, and he ain't paying attention to nothing. I pray to God he got filled up before he left because he will never know he's almost out of gas. I see him driving down the road, and they're talking back and forth. I guess husband and wife. And they're just going at it back and forth. They're not paying attention to anything. I'm trying to get around them. They're talking. And I'll tell you something else while I get this off my chest. When the light turns green from being red, will you go through it? Put your foot on the gas and move out smartly. Greatest thing they ever put on a car was a horn. I want to get me, somebody, I forget who it was. Well, I don't think it was in our church here, but somebody that we hooked up with had on their car one of those big train truck air horns. 
I mean, it sounded like judgment day when it went off. I think he had to carry a 400-pound-per-square-inch compressor in his trunk just to sound that sucker off. But when it went off, it woke the dead. Now, how'd you like to be behind some old fud up there in front, you know, or some goofy get up there? Who, and that's the thing. They're up there. I mean, they're... Hey, man, you're driving a car! Go to Westport if you want to dance. They're swaying back and forth, man. I saw one lady one time, the light was red. She's up there. The light's been green for 20 minutes. Oh, I'd love to have a... So they either just think they can make it or they just simply are not paying attention. And you know what? Those are the same two reasons that people run out of gas spiritually. You know you got problems. You know you got issues. But you know what? You just think you can get by without it. And you think you can make it. And you can't. Or you're just not paying attention. You come every Sunday and don't hear a thing said. You come to Thursday night. I've had people, I've had people that I preached on something on Sunday morning, and honest to goodness, Thursday night, I, I would say, I would say, you know what? God is love. Preach a whole message on God is love. Thursday night, I got a question. What is it? Is God love? Where were you? I know where you are. You're sitting at the light, listening to your music. And in your life and in my life, when it comes to where we're going for God, it will just come down to what's on the inside, what you're filled with. Somebody says, man, you're full of it. Yes, you are. It's just a matter of what you're full of, God or the world. Verse 22 said, lying lips are abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. Now, this is one of the cleanest, clearest, simplest, straightforward verses in all the Bible. It talks about lying lips. You will always have to deal with people who want to avoid dealing with issues so they lie about it. Half-truths. They'll hide behind a deception. People who, who totally will be out to purposely deceive somebody for their own personal gain or somebody who just never gives you the whole story of where they're at. They always keep back part of it because they don't want to really deal with the issue. And it makes helping them almost impossible. One of the fundamentals of the Bible, my dear friend, is truth. If you don't have that in your life, not much else is going to happen in your life, and your life is going to be a deception. Look at verse 22. But they that deal truly are his delight. People who deal in truth and delight in it will never get caught into a deception. Did you ever notice that? That's because, first of all, he won't fellowship with that element of people. He believes Psalms 1 when he says to stay away from the counsel of the ungodly, the way of sinners, and the seat of the scornful. So he's not part of it. The con artist of the world, men who deceive and make money off of people, who will deceive them, will actually tell you this. 
You can't con or deceive an honest man. He won't take a shortcut to making money because he knows there's no such shortcut. He won't take the bait. He won't fall into a deceptive scam or practice because he knows that they're fast tracks and the fast tracks aren't real. It appeals only to people who want to get ahead without real hard work involved or doing everything the right way. And he won't be part of that. An honest man knows if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. So he stays away from it. He knows there's always a hidden angle. Hey, all week long. And I'm sure you do too. Congratulations. You just won a free trip to the Bahamas. I get that once a week. Free trip to the Bahamas. Just call this number. Your tickets are waiting for you. Right. Right. Congratulations. You have been referred by your neighbors who also are part of this plan to have your house sighted almost next to nothing. It's the greatest deal and your neighbors haven't given us and referred us to you and you too, like them, can have your whole house encased in aluminum side. My neighbors hate me. <laughs> they wouldn't give me diddly squat. <laughs> And I always love this. It's free at a very low cost. (laughs) Congratulations. You're only one of four people in your neighborhood that have been selected for a free alarm system. We will come in and put it in absolutely free. All we want to do is put a sign in your yard so other people will see it. Now, I, I got to confess, I get so fed up with these, and after a while, and maybe I shouldn't even tell you this, I have a little fun with them. <laughs> I have four characters that I play pretty well. <laughs> My favorite is Jerome. <laughs> I can do a Chinese immigrant really well. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll actually push the, I mean, I, I'm so fed up with it. And you know what? And the one lies to you all the time. If you do not want this call again, just press 2, and we will take you on our no-call list. It'll take about 24 hours, but we will get you off. I push that number every time for six months. They still keep calling me. So I've earned a right to be whoever I want to be when they call. Oh, you ought to hear my Jerome. You ought to hear my Chinese immigrant. No, 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 no. I mean, I can I get them on there, and they, they actually think. That I'm a Chinese immigrant just came over here and that uh, I'm, you know, and I just, I have fun with them. I just have a ball. And then finally they'll say, well, uh, we're having a tough time understanding you, Mr. Chang. Could, <laughs> could, could maybe we call back and, and somebody else at the house? Now, I've been talking in broken Chinese English, Chinese. You know, I've been just having a ball with them. And so now they've come to the point when they say, and I'm mad because... They're doing this to me. So I, I did, they come down, could we call back at a later time and, and, uh, and maybe we could talk to it? And then I'll say, absolutely. I'd love to have you call back at some point. Click, hang the phone up. 
Listen, there will always be people who will try to deceive you, whether they're saved or whether they're lost. And I was told I shouldn't probably tell you that. And sometimes it just gets to me. I'm just like everybody else. But you know what? Your response in 99.9 of cases except something like this. <laughs> Always do what's right by them. I got down here in my notes. I might as well throw this out. Don't start a counter deception to show you're better than they are. Throw that one out. <laughs> Never get on their level. Throw that one out. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, fuck very much. I, I love it. <laughs> But in most cases, if you're normal, and I'm not normal, just stay with the Bible principles that are the truth. You're always safe there. In ministry, always be able to look back at the people you've dealt with and say in your heart, I did what the Bible says. Very important. People will try to deceive you, try to burn you, take advantage of you. I said try to. Never look back and focus, and this is a problem for a lot of people. Never, listen to me, never look back and focus on how they try to deceive you. It'll drive you crazy. My wife's got a little thing on the refrigerator that says, people can't drive you crazy unless you give them your car keys. And that is so true. Don't look back and focus on how they try to deceive you. It'll drive you nuts. But rather, always look back and focus on how you dealt with them. Did you follow the principles? Because I want to tell you something. In dealing with people, a good conscience before God is worth $100 million. Allow them in their fantasy world to live their life by denial or deception. They'll all self-destruct in time. They always do. That's a fundamental. But you stay with the truth. You operate by biblical principles. You always, in any situation, be able to open the Bible and say and show them, here's how and why I responded to you the way I did. Now, you'll never have a chance to do those things. People like that will stay as far away from an open Bible as they can. They just cut you with the short of their mouth from a distance. You know, courage behind a keyboard. Remember, cowards always hide behind either somebody or something else, but never face-to-face with an open Bible before them. And the reason you do is because of the fact that the Bible says in verse 21, there shall be no evil happen to the just. You stay with the book. One will be filled with mischief. The other will be filled with truth. And and, and I want to say this, and I'm closing here. And every true Christian who does his best to give God his all and to do everything that God's called him to do, you're going to get clobbered. You're going to get people who try to deceive you. There's going to be people who see your spirituality and your maturity who don't appreciate it because they don't have it. So they're going to try to make you look bad and put you in a bad spot because they're really jealous of what you have. And you're going to find people like that in every walk of life that you try to work with people. 
But every one of you here today who try to do the best you can before God, and you live your life, nobody's perfect. You live your life to the best of your ability. You always strive to be everything that God wants you to be, and you really work at doing what's right with people. Before you die, about a week, maybe a month before you die, or just when you get old, you don't know when you're going to die, <laughs> you should write one book. You should be able to look back in your life and chronicleize all that God has done with you, well, where you've been, the road down through life that God has walked with you and the people that he's put in your life, some good, some bad. And you ought to write one book that ought to prove to your children and to anybody around you that the way you lived your life was the best way to live it. And you ought to title that book simply, Where Are They Now? A book of where you're at after a life of doing right and serving God to the best of your ability and where they are all at who are filled with deception and all the things that they did to try to stop the work of God. It'd be a great book because their life of deception will always lead them to disaster. And if you have time and time permits after you write that book, I suggest you write a second volume, volume, and that second volume would be, where are their kids at? Because you see, the same plan of deception that the parents have gets translated right into the children, and they become exactly what the parents were. And you can write one book after 20, 30 years of seeing it and look at those lives and the disasters and their marriages and their, their, their personal life is a mess. And then you can write a second book of looking where their children are, how their children are a mess. Because I'm going to tell you in Genesis chapter 27, going back to where Jacob and Esau, when old Jacob went in to deceive his daddy, he put on a goat skin. And when we went into Isaac, the deception was all centered around a goat skin that he put on to deceive his daddy. And many, many years later in Genesis chapter 37, when the boys want to get rid of Joseph, and they put him in a hole and they're going to kill him, and then they sell him to the Midianites and he winds up in Egypt, when they go home to their daddy, Jacob, they can't tell him the truth. They have to put forth another deception so they use the same goat skin to deceive their daddy that their daddy used 40 years earlier to do his deception. I wonder where they learned that. Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but the counselor of peace is joy. And the key to whatever you do or I do in life, whether it's in the world, in your business, or in your ministry with the Lord, will go back to the simple fundamentals of the Bible and the Christian life. Every head bowed and every eye closed.